and we have to also be building the world that we want yeah right. as we go we can't just wait for that day to somehow magically happen right but we we're building it as we go and and that's that's what abolitionists are, are inviting us into is that imagination of of a world where you know everybody is actually safe So I want to sort of switch gears a little bit, although it's, I know it's all interrelated, but I want to talk about your work with the defund the police movement, because it's, it's such a scary thing. And it's, it's not just a scary thing for white people. It's like, we've, we've been under empiric standards (laughs) where we've had the presence of police in whatever form that is for, you know, almost eternity. There, there are definitely cultures that, that, in societies that existed that didn't have that. But, um, and I do think I'll stick this in there. It's so important to learn history as well. So we, so we understand what's possible, but, um, so, so tell me how you got to this work in particular, the, the, uh, so you call it's defund the police, but it's more than that because that's also a spectrum as well. Correct. Yeah. That's, that's also a spectrum. Um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't always an abolitionist. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, there were lots of things that I didn't understand. You know, I continue to grow. I continue to learn. I continue to ask, why are things the way they are? Right. Um, and, and how do we make them better? Um, and I, I really trace my... Um, like understanding of myself as an, as an abolitionist to an action I participated in in 2007 um, in Denver when I was in seminary. Um, we were asked to uh, participate in an action being led by indigenous people in Denver to protest the Columbus Day Parade. Yeah. That might sound like to some people like, why is that a big deal? But um, Columbus Day began as a federal holiday or as a holiday, the observance began in Colorado. Hmm. And particularly in Denver and also in in Pueblo, Colorado, um, the parades were like these really gross representations of colonization. Yeah. Um, I mean, the figure of Columbus is a figure of colonization, but the parades were also like, uh, like reenactments of the violence of, of colonization on the streets of Denver, sitting on indigenous land that had never actually been ceded to the United States. Yeah, it's still protected by treaty, but was stolen to build to build Denver and environs. And that year, two thousand seven, was one hundredth anniversary, and so um, the indigenous uh, leadership in, in Denver. Um, held an action to actually stop the the parade, just just to stop it from moving, not actually attack it or anything, but you know, stand in the street or sit in the street and keep it from moving forward. Yeah. And um, we were asked was at that seminary to to participate in that, to be in solidarity with that, and so a group of us did that, and we expected. We practiced all of our nonviolent techniques. We had our plans, all of that. Um, everyone who was not just our group, but but everyone else who was intending to do that, you know, was very grounded in in like nonviolent practice. I assumed, I'll just name it for myself, that our commitment to nonviolence meant that the police would also commit to be nonviolent. Like they would come and they would, you know, they would escort us away but they wouldn't like actively try to hurt us Um, especially those of us who were wearing like visible uh like stoles and and collars right that's not what happened (laughs) um our our group was seated uh right up against the police actually blocked the parade first they blocked the street and we so then we all just 
sat or took the street after they did that. We were right up against the police line. We were sitting in a circle, arms uh, you know, locked at our elbows, and we were singing Amazing Grace and started to see like these heavily armed riot cops wading into the into the crowd, um, beating people with their batons. Um, some of the folks were disabled, they were elderly, there were children present. They were hauling people up, they were putting people in pain compliance holds. Um, you know, I, I watched them harm my friends in, the, in, the, in our circle as they pulled us apart. Um, not even really giving us a, an opportunity to say, I'll go with you, because that was our plan actually, was not to make them like have to drag us off, but to say, you know, once they approached us to be like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll come with you. Um, but we didn't even get that opportunity. Um, and so, um, sorry, I'm just having a little, little moment of remembering that. Um, I'd never seen anything like that before. I'd never, I have probably really naive to expect that we would be treated otherwise, but, <clears throat> uh, but we were, we were hauled off. Um, I sustained like injuries to my shoulders and my, my arms and my wrists that I still deal with today because of how I was treated by the police that day. Um, we were held in jail, like as long as they could possibly keep us there, even though we had posted bond as a, as a form of punishing us. And um, when I, when, when I was going to say when I came out of that experience, but I'm not sure I've ever actually come out of that experience. I'm still like mining that experience for what it means to, to be a white person on this continent. <laughs> um, and, and the kind of violence that white supremacy will enact to maintain its control. Because I wanted to know what in the hell, like, why? Why did this happen? Why were we treated like this? And when we were in our debriefing sessions and, and planning for our trials, um, you know, we heard over and over again from the indigenous folks and the, and the black folks who participated and the Chicano folks who participated, like, this is what happens to us all the time. This is what happened to our ancestors all the time. This is, this is how it is. Like, this is what policing will do to protect the interests of white supremacy. And I was like, I did not know that. I thought that we were like, we do our part to be nonviolent. They do their part to be nonviolent, you know, and actually that's not what they're interested in. Um, we tried to like pursue, you know, um, like some kind of accountability for the harm that they did to us because it, it violated their own policy manuals, but they were, nobody was ever held accountable for that. And so again, like it's coming back to that same question, like why, why is this like this? Yeah. And so, you know, like I said earlier about sanctuary and about immigration, I began to explore on my own. I began to listen to other people and in, in people of color in new ways and and like my own body telling me, like, we cannot live in a world like this. Yeah. Like, we just can't. And the more that I understood about the roots of policing in this country, because policing as it exists in the United States has not existed like this in, in other places. Right. Empires have their enforcement bodies. That's definitely true. But there's, you know, Rome had its enforcement body. Babylon had its enforcement bodies. And so there are ways that we can read our, our sacred texts and see elements of things that are like policing, you know, like Jesus being arrested and, and being beaten up right. um, before, he's, before he's executed by Rome. Um, but also policing as it exists in the United States is a new phenomenon. It's a modern phenomenon. And it exists, it, you know, its roots are in enforcing enslavement, enforcing the genocide of indigenous people and, and enforcing borders uh, 
um, and the expansion of borders uh, for like the white colonial and imperial project, Manifest Destiny, essentially. And once I, I began to, to really understand that not only are those the roots, but those are actually still the way that policing functions and white people are being sold a lie, really? That, oh, they're here to protect and serve us and they're here to keep us safe. They're not actually. They're here to control and protect white wealth and power. And as long as we as white people are obedient to white wealth and power, then yeah, they'll keep us safe. But the moment that we're not, yeah. they will come after us too. Yeah. Like this system of white supremacy and, and racial capitalism does not care about us, any of us. The pandemic, how the pandemic has been handled should make that really clear, even, even for like middle-class and, and upper-middle-class white folk, like capitalism doesn't care. Go to work sick, infect your neighbor. Right. Like, is that the gospel? Right. That's not the gospel. That's not the world that I want to live in. Like it, it does not care about us. And policing exists to enforce that in, on this, in this country, on this continent. It, it, it exists to in, enforce that power. And once I got that, then I was like, oh, I guess I'm an abolitionist now because I don't want to live in a world like that. And, and I don't believe and the, the abolitionists that, that I that I dream with, I'll say, like, don't believe that system can just be reformed. Like we can just make it nicer somehow because that's not why it exists. Right. It's not that there are some bad people who are doing the wrong things. And this kind of goes back again to what we were saying, right? About, you know, goodness is not really actually the measure that we wanna look at. Like, what are the actual actions? What is, what is the purpose? It's not a reformable institution. That doesn't mean that there's not good people in it trying right. to do something different, but there is so much like literal money invested in protecting what policing is yeah. um, that those few good people, they're not gonna be able to change that from the inside. Right. And so, you know, what we need are like what Miriam Kaba describes as like a million experiments to figure out ways to not have to rely on the police, to reduce the harm of police, to practice new ways of being in community with each other that can address conflict and harm because they do happen. Yeah. Um, you know, training ourselves in, in, in how to protect one another, you know, not with guns necessarily, not with guns, but, but there are ways like we saw with the synagogue um, uh, up in, up in Colleyville, like they were trained, you know, they were trained by the FBI, but there are actually like non-policing organizations that can do this kind of training of how to protect yourself in, in that kind of situation, how to protect your people. Yeah. And, and they rescued themselves. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so we need all of those, you know, it's defund the police, but it's really about what kind of a world do we want to live in? What kind of a world do we want to invest in? What is getting in the way of living in that world? Right. And if we continue to invest in policing in the United States, that's going to prevent us from getting to the world that we want. Right. And it's going to prevent us from getting the world that God wants for us. The last time we talked, he told me that story about um, that experience you had in, in Denver um, on that fateful Columbus Day. And um, I don't know, I, I don't know why, but it, I could, I could just hear today, I could hear the, all the emotion come back. Like I, I could, I could watch you relive it. And so thank you for sharing that, that vulnerability. Um, thank you for receiving it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for making something out of a very something good out of a very traumatic experience. Um, that people live every like you said people live every day. People live every day, 
And I would say too, you know, it goes, for me, it goes back to us being accountable to ourselves, you know, to, to dream of a world, to think of a world that doesn't have, that we're, we're not dependent on the police solving all of our problems for us. Um, I mean, I, I'm in no way comparing this to your experience at all, but I, I had a neighbor who, rightfully so, he's a little scared of me because I almost ran over and backing out of my driveway one day while he was walking his dog because I was in a hurry and and apologized for it because um, I didn't see him. But he, there, we have a constables that patrol uh, our neighborhood and... Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, and... Um, he went and talked to her, the the female constable, and who who I knew. She and I have had a lot of conversation. And she walked. Up, she knocked on my door one day, and I was like, "Well, this is odd. <laughs> you don't usually get house calls." And she profusely apologized, and she said, "But I, I he asked me to say something, and so I have to say it." And so for me, that is just like a microcosm of. I mean, that's such a great example, right? Of like. I mean, my example is like this huge traumatic thing, but there's also like the daily examples of like, why do you need a constable to talk to your neighbor? Which, yeah, when we've already talked about it and I've apologized and now I pay attention to where I'm backing out, right? Like, yeah, like what, what is that? Like, that is something that white supremacy culture does to us as white people. Like, like we have to, we have to always be pulling the threat of, I'm going to have you arrested. I'm going to call the cops on you. Like, right. why? Like, that was not, y'all talked about it. Like, and, you know, we have a neighbor who lives on, on this side of us. I'm waving to my left for those who, who can't see. Um, you know, and he's kind of a jerk. And in the summer, he, he sits on his porch and plays his music really loud. Mm-hmm. And we've tried to talk to him. Doesn't work very well because he's homophobic and um we are not um but other neighbors have called the police on him for the for the music yeah and we're like we're not going to do that right we're just going to keep talking to him right and but it's that but the impulse we know that they've come we've seen them come because somebody else has called them it doesn't help it just makes him mad right so we just talked to him like do we know that it helps you to play this music um because you know he's got some mental health stuff he's a disabled vet like yeah we actually don't want the cops messing with him because of the mental health stuff like he doesn't need to go to jail like we just keep talking to him right and gradually over the the three years that we've almost that we've lived in this house you know he's actually like come around a little bit and won't play it so loud or for a shorter amount of time like you know it's 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 those impulses like you know that the meme says the cop in our heads like we have to yeah. part of what we have to do is defund the cop in our heads like divest from that voice in us that wants to threaten our neighbor instead of love our neighbor and that is not always easy we do not always have good answers to that right. and and we don't have all that we need you know cuz to 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 have other ways of engaging with folks when we when we actually are unsafe right because there are times when we're like you know is two women living here like there are things that that we're not going to engage with but gosh i wish that we had a team of you know i don't know big burly people who could (laughs) go interact with somebody you know so that we don't have to right you know all kinds of a million experiments a million experiments yeah Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, and so again, I'm, I'm back to two questions in my head that I'm deciding to ask, but you know, first, first question, and then we'll talk about, we'll, we'll talk about this. Then we'll talk about Micah six, eight, because I do want to go there. But, um, so how do you talk people off the ledge? Because when you, you know, that, (laughs) that tendency of people to just freak out when you, even whisper defund the police or even suggest that there may be an, because it's become so politicized and and outrageous and controversial so you know when when you're in conversation with someone and i'm you know if you're even considering 
doing more research on what the spectrum of the movement of defund the police is, which I would encourage everybody listening to do and what that would mean for you and your community. But, you know, before you freak out, like how to take a breath and, and what, what are some things you would encourage people to think about? That's such a great question. And, and, you know, I'm sure that there, there are folks who even, even hearing my story, you know, just, just now are, are having a reaction, you know, because, because we do, you know, and there, there is something about there, I mean, just in general, working with white folks on, on anti-racist stuff is, is hard work. You know, there's, it's requires such, such a consciousness shift for us as white people to orient ourselves away from the power that we're, that we are told that we have, which we don't really have, um, and orient ourselves towards a multiracial, multi-class liberation movement. I mean, that's such a shift for us just in general. And in my experience of, of working with folks um, on, on our campaign, the Community Safety for All campaign, there's, there's something about policing that taps into something really deep in, in white people um, that is really hard for us to wrap our heads around. You know, you know, I talked about my own journey, like like it happened overnight, but it took right. actually several years, and uh, you know, and and still I'm learning, yeah. still I'm learning, um, and so I think you know when I when I work with with white folks on this, I just try to encourage us to to know that that reaction is normal and to honor it actually and and that it's okay if you're not where other people are yet and that you have lots of questions because we all do yeah you know I thought that day in Denver that you know the treat police would treat us just fine because that's what like there was some kind of agreement about that right and I was I was very incorrect yeah. um and it and it and then afterwards did you think that maybe it was just a one-off no because it be, yeah, I was listening to to the indigenous folks and the black folks and the, and the Chicano folks talk about like this happens to us all the time yeah okay and then I began to pay attention to like how it was actually <laughs> happening yeah. all the time right um and then you know, I think also with, with social media becoming like more aware of like all over, it's happening all the time, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, Trayvon, Tamir, um, just in Denver, you know, Paul Castaway, Jesse Hernandez, um, Michael Marshall, like just Sandra Bland, like, so like, it's happening all the time. Right. And like it's it's hard to turn away from that once once you begin to see it at least at least for me yeah but i think i think that there is a that there is a grief that happens mm -hmm. in white people as we begin to realize that we have not been told the truth about how things are and that that is so so difficult yeah. so much has been invested in us to to get us to believe that the world is shaped in a particular way for white people. And it's so, so hard to have that ground like broken up and under your feet. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're having that reaction, just explore it and honor it and, and do some learning and ask questions. Like yeah. I'm always telling folks when I'm working with them, you know, I mean, this is where I am. You don't have to be here ask me questions, right? Ask me questions. Right. And there's actually a ton of, of work done on, on the roots of policing, you know, the history, the, the, how those roots tie into the current impacts, like abolition visions, like, you know, I, I keep an ongoing list. It's 20 pages now. Mm. I can send you the link to it. I, I do that for, yeah. for search faith. And, and there's, there's always more to learn. I'm always learning more. Um, 
and I think that another thing that that I I try to help white folks to 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 be aware of in this is that what we've been told and and how you know abolition or defunding or however you want to call it gets gets presented to us in kind of the popular imagination as if it's as if it's a one-off event as if it's a light switch that you can just throw on or off we may have talked about this before you know like today um like today we have police and tomorrow there's anarchy and chaos it's the purge yes yeah that's what i always picture <laughs> and and that's scary like nobody wants that yeah. But that's not actually what abolition is. Right. So going back to Miriam Cobbett, it's a million experiments. It's about how we talk to our neighbor. It's about building, you know, mutual aid networks to make sure that people are fed and tended to, you know, in general and in times of disaster and, and in other times. It's practicing new forms of accountability that don't rely on punishment and surveillance and, and control. Um, right. It's undoing our theological systems that think that what God wants for us is punishment and surveillance and control. Right. You know, it's, 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 it's all kinds of things. Yeah. It's getting weapons out of cops' hands. I mean, it's sometimes, you know, it's literally like that, but it's also all of these other things. Right. The whole spectrum of things that actually lots of communities have already been practicing for generations because they've had to. Right. Not only communities of color, but disabled, like white disabled folks, you know, poor and working class white people who know that they can't trust the police to help them. Right. Um, and so they figure out other ways. Uh, there's a homeless community in, in Oakland that um, they have, a, they wrote a book together about how they did this, like 20 years of dealing with conflict and the kind of stuff that just happens in human community without ever having to call the police. Wow. You know, so so it's things that communities are already doing. Yeah. You know, ancestral indigenous practices that that can not only I don't mean only like indigenous practices from indigenous people on this continent, but the people that our ancestry is white people, where they where we come from, yeah, our own ancestral practices, uh, you know, around accountability, around relationship to land, like all these other things that you know, prior to when we became assimilated into whiteness, like what can we also recover from our traditions? Makes me think of the, the 10 commandments where, you know, the first four are about God and the last six are about our relationships between each other. And if we actually followed those, there wouldn't be a need for much policing, <laughs> if any at all. See, I'm, I'm still hedging. I'm like, <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't, my brain can't, quite go there we say in our in the toolkit like the community safety for all toolkit like you know are we asking you to to from this day forward ne never to call the police again like we're actually not asking congregations to do that we're asking you to explore ways to re you know release that reliance as much as possible but we also know that we don't live in a world yet where we have the infrastructure that we need you know for for example you know, when we still lived in Denver, I think the year before that, that we moved, our house was broken into. Mm. We weren't home. My partner came home and the, you know, the back door, back gate had been wrenched open. The back door was wide open. Oh. Like, you're gonna, you know, she did what she believed she needed to do. And I, I agreed with her, even though both of us, you know, hold this commitment to not rely on policing as much as possible. But right. she needed to know that the house was safe to go into. Right. And so, you know, she called the police and, yeah. and they came and the, the officer and the detective were, were really kind to her. Um, by the time I got home, they, they had left, but, but she was also afraid because she's, she's a woman of color. And there was that summer, there were um, cases of women of color calling the police for assistance and being killed at their homes. Uh, so she was also scared, but like, what are, you, what are you gonna do? The um, there isn't one. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, one of the examples that we have in the toolkit uh, uh, of a security plan is a is an urban congregation that you know has figured out like what are we able to handle on our own actually? Hmm. What can we get trained to handle on our own? And at what point will we call nine one one for help? 
yeah. and they've got it all lined out in this document and and like yes that's actually really great that's a really great example because yeah. it's not a light switch right you know and do i hope that eventually one day we can live in a world where without policing at all yeah i do and and also like this is the world we are in now yeah and <laughs> and you know we're, we'll do the best we can yeah 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 and we have to also be building the world that we want Right. as we go we can't just wait for that day to somehow magically happen right but we we're building it as we go and yeah. and that's that's what abolitionists are, are inviting us into is that imagination of of a world where you know everybody is actually safe like we're handling conflict and harm in ways that don't cause more violence um, and that's the kind of world I want to live in. So tell me how this connects, and maybe we nerd out for a minute on this, Bible nerd out on this, but tell me how this connects to Micah 6, 8, and I'll just go ahead and read that. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's the New Revised Standard Version. So how... How does this, the work that you're doing, both in anti-racist work and in abolitionist work, how, how do those connect in your mind with, essentially, <laughs> was one of the great commissions, right? Not not just the, the one in Matthew 28, but, but this one, to me, is like how we should really be living. And, and part of what, what I want to say about that text is, is the first part, which you've been told what's good. Mm. Micah is this this prophetic text. You know, it 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 lays out like like all the prophets do this vision for how how the divine actually longs for us to live together, mm-hmm. and it's good. Yeah, you know, like in the creation story, God calls it good over and over again. It was yeah. good. It was good. God created humans, and they were good. And the Sabbath was good and the light is good. You know, it's good. God has told you, humans, what is good. Mm-hmm. And, and so that little trinity then of, of, of imperatives is like the how. Mm-hmm. How do we get to the good? How do we hold on to the good? Not about good, like I, I am a good person, but the right. goodness that can be in loving accountable compassionate community together and you know in in our work in surge we talk a lot you know as a staff about like how we hold our work with both care and rigor so being really clear about what we believe in and why and and holding that position while also having so much love for the people that we're we're working with and and for ourselves because it's not like we have it all figured out either, you know? And so I, I see that in this, you know, in, in, in this text of like, do justice and love kindness. So again, coming back to like, we're calling people into a vision of the world as, as the divine longs for us to be. Yeah. And that is, a, that is a just world. That is a world, there's some nerdiness on the, the word justice um the mishpat mm-hmm. like the hebrew word is this expansive imaginative word that's that's not just justice uh, uh, like the way that we think about it in in the west in the united states of like carceral systems or even like i'm gonna do my justice work but it's right. about how the society is structured together so that everyone thrives like that's actually justice. Yep. So we're we're doing our part to build that world and we're doing it rooted in love. Yeah. And we're doing it like rooted in God. Yeah. And in humility. Yeah. Cuz we don't know, like we're doing the best we can in this moment. Yeah. You know. And we're opening ourselves up to possibility and imagination. 
and relinquishing some control that we've been taught we've had to hold on to in order to survive in racial capitalism. And that requires humility, that requires open-heartedness, that requires like, I don't know all the answers. That requires collectivity because this is a command. This is is an imperative to community, not not only individuals, but a community. You know, figuring out how to live together in ways that are not gonna replicate the empires that have done this, done them so much harm. And that's our call, figure out how to live together in ways that don't replicate the harm of the systems that we're living under. I love that you brought up the word mishpat because I've been doing a ton of reading on Hesed. It's my word for at least this year, but they are very closely related. Like the Hesed, the loving kindness, the the character of God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and all the way back to what he call what God he what God calls himself um, in Exodus, but um, the expression of that is mishpat. Mm-hmm. And that's where yeah. God's desire is thriving, yeah. is, is not survival. It is for the world to right. flourish. Yeah. And a thriving community means everybody's fed, everybody has shelter, Everybody has love. There's nobody in jail. Like all of these visions of that thriving include like we're letting the prisoners free now. Yep. Yep. Because a thriving community does not have jails. Right. Like, woo, that's a that's a mind bender. That's a mind bender. But that's what it says in the Bible. So set the captives free. Jesus quoted that. Folks with different different abilities, folks who are disabled, you know, they they have access. Yeah into community and into leadership and, you know, in, in exactly as they are, you know, all of these things that white supremacy doesn't want for us, actually. Yeah. It wants us to produce and consume. And if we can't do that, then we're, we are worthless to this system. Right. And I don't want to live in a world like that. And God doesn't want us to live in a world like that. And, and this is, it just feels like such seed planting kind of work and I'm sure and we talked about this the last time we talked but um you know that the reason why we why we spoke in the first place was because your team was following up on everybody had downloaded the um racial justice toolkit and um and I'm sure most of those were white folks in white churches and um (laughs) <laughs> your 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 person that was calling got to me and was like, "Huh, you're a little different, <laughs> but <laughs> you're you're not in the usual situation." But so because Surge has been operating in this and and planting seeds, um, have you have you seen those seeds really start to grow? Have you seen do you do you know of churches that have really pressed into this work, or is it is it still at the we're waiting for the seeds to produce kind of yeah I think it's I think it's a both and we know of um and we're still calling through that list so maybe you want to help us um (laughs) you know we've been working on this campaign since 2017 and when we first started it was like pulling teeth to get congregations to even have a conversation with us much less actually participate in the campaign and at that time we were doing like we invited churches in and we did this cohort and we would you know have this like intense six month or four month, I forget exactly, training sessions and mm. and and they had to, you know, to make some kind of declaration and 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 it was just nearly impossible. Yeah. Like we would contact progressive churches that had been with us and participated in search faith stuff with us before, had Black Lives Matter banners hung on their buildings and they would be like, no, we can't we 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 like our relationship with the police. We can't talk about we we're not going to do that. Or, or, you know, we were accused of being divisive, you know, Jesus yeah. would never ask us to, to choose sides like this, like, okay, um, <laughs> you know, all kinds of stuff. And, and so, but we kept going. And, and then in 2020, 
I had in my work plan, we're not going to do the cohort thing anymore, but but I'm going to turn this into something that congregations can can use because I feel I'm passionate about it and I feel it's actually really necessary work that congregations need to do, especially Christian congregations because of the ways that white Christian theology like is the moral backbone of white supremacy and and of uh, the system of policing. Um, it is necessary, it is a necessary piece of the work for congregations as congregations to divest themselves from harmful systems such as this. So in 2020, it was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something, turn it into a toolkit or something so that congregations can still, can still do this. And then of course the uprisings happened. And then the movement for black lives is like, we have to defund the police. And then, you know, that just became, that illuminated, right? Yeah. that we actually have to make a choice mm -hmm. about what kind of world that we want. And the brilliance of, of insisting on that language, yeah, it provokes something, but it's intended to. And what it has provoked is the possibility for more white people to say yes. That's part of what it's provoked. For more white people to say, yeah, I actually want to invest in a different kind of world yeah. where you know the, the police aren't killing people with yeah. impunity. Like I want to invest in a different kind of world where my brother who has a, th this is a hypothetical, um, you know, my sibling, whoever has a mental health problem ends up in jail, dies with no help or is, or is traumatized by that experience, doesn't get the support they need, you know, whatever. Um, and so, you know, I, I always wanna remind white folks that like, yeah, it's, it's provocative language, it's illuminating the choice that we have to make as white people of what kind of world we want to invest in, what kind of world we want to live in. And it was, it was genius because what happened after, after that outcry came was we launched that toolkit and we had nearly 1500 people access it in, in the two year, in the year time in the pandemic is such a wacky thing. Like, 2020, 2021 year and a little bit yeah. since we launched it. We know of in a conversation with uh, 25 congregations that have engaged it, are engaging it in some way or another. Like this, this urban congregation I mentioned before, use some of the tools in the toolkit to figure out their security, their new security practice and plan. Yeah. And so, um, and there are probably more that we just don't know about because we haven't been able to call through that whole list yet. If anybody wants to help, please reach out. Right. Um, because it's just me in a in a in a part-time role and, and some volunteers. Um, you know, or there are folks like like you who who have reached out with questions and are really wrestling with it. You know, there's another like 50 folks there who you know, with support and encouragement could make that next move in, into action, Yeah. right? And we did not have that before the uprising. We did not have that before that defund police um, outcry for abolition became, became so mainstream. And, you know, I think, you know, as, as white folks, we get all, we get all creaky about about defund, it's so, it's so divisive, it's so, it's so inflammatory, but it has made so much more possible. Right. And so we're, we're seeing some sense of harvest of seeds that, that Surge Faith has been planting for a long time, mm -hmm. and also that the Movement for Black Lives has been planting for a long time, because I don't want to only take credit for that. Right. And also we know that we're still planting seeds, right? We're still planting seeds that we may not even ever see the, the harvest of. Right. But at some point, you know, who knows, somebody may be using that toolkit somewhere and we'll never actually know about it, but they'll have, you know, done some of that work with their congregation yeah. to figure out, you know, we're gonna have a mental health first aid response team instead of calling 911, mm. you know? Like that's a thing a congregation can do. Now the, I mean, the wheels are like, like there should be smoke coming out of my ears, but it, it was like that the last time we spoke. So I should just continue to think that every time I talk to Reverend Ann, this is what's going to happen. So um, how you mentioned this, and I, I want to highlight something in your bio. You, so you're an herbalist. Yes. 
is that one of the ways that you know you talk about the <clears throat> the um the care and the rigor so how, so how do you stay resilient in this and not not just endure not just keep pushing not just keep operating under that white supremacist machine so how do you how do you find that balance yeah yeah that's such a great question um especially in the in this time of like the pandemic climate crisis uh racial capitalism falling down around our ears you know it like people are under immense amounts of strain and so this question of of resilience and resilience is really about our our ability to stay adaptable in the in the midst of of change in the midst of and even good change um we are in the midst of what i hope will eventually be good change um but right now is really scary change you know um and, and you know and so the the herbal practice is 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 key to me for that i mean it's key to me for a lot of reasons but it it's actually one of the the ways in which i first began to identify my own mutual interest in getting liberated from white supremacy was because i was totally burned out mm -hmm. by trying to be the perfect activist again that kind of perfectionism the urgency the showing up for everything having to do it right all the time can't make a mistake have to be at all like i had a crisis yeah. and you know I, I went to the doctor I went to a therapist but a friend of mine said why don't you go see our our herbalist friends for an actual consult and so I did and working with with the herbs and being beginning to like look at how the the rhythms and the seasons of the earth like they need rest mm -hmm. that's part of what happens there's waxing there's a waning you know, there, especially up here in, in Buffalo, there's the fallow time. Where everything's under under the snow. It's not doing anything other than just resting under there, building up energy for for spring to come. Like, you know, reflecting on those patterns, those cycles of of Sabbath um, that we find in the Bible and God calling that good and like that's not what capitalism asks of us. Mm -hmm. And I'm not gonna survive if I keep trying to live like that. Yeah. And um, and so yeah, so I've been doing herbal practice since since 2011 and got trained by my teacher um, to be a community herbalist. And so, you know, the ways in which the the earth actually wants to help us, you know, to find our way back to them. Yeah find our way back to the plants, find our way back to those rhythms. And that we as white folks actually have these traditions in our lineages. We don't have to take them from, from other cultures. We actually have them in Irish tradition, British, Scottish, French, like Western Europe. Like we, we have these, these practices, ways of relating to the land that help us remember to rest, mm. that help keep our hearts soft and open that help us know how to tend to our bodies and our hearts when they're aching and broken. Yeah. Um, that help us remember how to be in community, not only with other humans, but also the rest of creation too. Yeah. Remembering our place, um, not outside of nature, but as part of it, mm. that we're meant to rest. Yeah. We're meant to fruit. We're meant in, I don't just mean with children, but but to generate life in all kinds of ways. Right. You know, we're we're meant to allow for fallow times. And so, you know, over time I've tried to, you know, it, it's it can be challenging because we still live in the system of racial capitalism and and you know the world falling apart, but make sure that there are those kinds of times in my day, in the seasons, you know, the pandemic has really taught me that I have to slow way, way down. Yeah. Um, and that there is so much out there that around us that wants to help us yeah. as humans find our way back to who we're meant to be and how we're meant to be. 
I've appreciated and enjoyed this so much. This has just been really delightful. So thank you for, thank you. When I say us, I mean the, the us who are listening <laughs> whenever they're listening. <laughs> but um, if, if individuals and, and churches, congregations want to know more, where can they go? Um, they can go to the Surge website, surj.org, surge.org. Um, the faith work is under the, uh, I forget what, what tab it is on the menu, but you'll find it. It'll be there. Um, and, and you can learn more about us there. You can learn about the campaign. You can learn about some of the other resources that we have, um, our podcast, uh, other stuff as well, other stuff there as well. And, um, and there are ways to, to reach out, um, to us for conversation, support, whatever, you know, um, we're here and, and we love you. And that's why we do the work that we do. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate this. You know, this is the, the, this whole season of this podcast um, is, you know, this, this idea of applying Jesus, a little turn, turn, turning the idea, the typical evangelical idea on its head, because it's, it's so we can, I feel like this is a call back, not just to a new vision of the future, but to bring forward what has always been true about our faith tradition and um, including our, our ancient history, that we bring that forward into the, the present and into the, the vision of the future, that we can apply Jesus and his model for living and and his his short life, the the revolutionary things that he said and did, that's what's exciting. Is that it's like you said, what kind of world? This this is the essence for me. What kind of world do we want to build? Um, and and scripture teaches us that, and so we can apply that at an individual, like a self level and a, a you know family unit level, and just build from there. So, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for, for inviting me into this conversation with you. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I'm, I can't wait till we nerd out later. I will plan that season. It's just you know, like nerding out. <laughs> that's, the, that's the title. Nerding out. <laughs> awesome. Well, Reverend Ann, it's been a joy to be with you and, and be blessed. Can I? Can I speak a word of blessing over you or would you like to speak one over us? You know what? I would love it if you would speak a word of blessing over me. It's been, it's actually been a really hard week. So um, I would love to receive that. Thank you. I'll use my favorite one from number six. Um, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may he remind you, may God remind you that he lifts up his countenance upon you and it is peace that he gives. So I just pray that you receive that in Jesus' name. Applying Jesus is hosted and produced by Amy Vogel, Director of Spiritual Growth for Upper Room Heights. We record at Chapelwood United Methodist Church Digital Studio in Houston, Texas. We hope something you heard today has deepened your faith, opened your eyes, and led you to not only knowing God in a more expansive way, but shift how you connect, especially with those who are easy to overlook. To find out more about Amy and our church community, go to www.urheights.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Remember, we love you, and there's nothing you can do about it.